Well, our text this morning is taken from the Gospel of Mark. Gospel of Mark, we're continuing our series. We're going to be in chapter 13 today. Uh, We'll be reading the whole chapter, and you can find it printed in your bulletin. So I decided, if you're not really sure how to introduce a sermon, that it's always safe to go with Johnny Cash. Um, So Keith, if you can kind of come give me a... Okay. but let me, I'll, I'll read the lyrics and you can see if you can tell me what song this is from. And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder of the four beasts saying, come and see. And I saw and behold a white horse. There's a man going around taking names and he decides who to free and who to blame. Everybody won't be treated all the same. There'll be a golden ladder reaching down when the man comes around. The hairs on your arm will stand up at the terror in each sip and in each sup. Will you partake of that last offered cup or disappear into the potter's ground when the man comes around? Hear the trumpets, hear the pipers, 100 million angels singing, multitudes are marching to the big kettle drum, voices calling, voices crying, some are born and some are dying, it's Alpha and Omega's kingdom come. Anybody name the song? When the man comes around. When the man comes around. Boy, <laughs> Not a boy, You get the autograph, Johnny Cash CD. <laughs> if I can find it. Um, when the man comes around. And what what is that song about, do you think? Yeah. It's about death. Uh, it's about death coming. It's about Christ coming. Uh, when the man comes around, when Jesus returns. Uh, And so we're looking at a passage this morning that deals with, uh, depending on who you ask, it either either deals with entirely with the second coming of Christ, it either hardly deals with that at all, it is entirely about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in AD 70, or it's partially about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in AD 70, and partially about the second coming of of Jesus. And Jesus is speaking these words about 40 years before that destruction of the temple. This passage has been called the most difficult passage in the Gospel of Mark uh, to understand, and one of the most difficult passages to understand in the entire New Testament. Uh, so community group leaders have fun with this tonight. But, but, but no matter where you come down on this passage, and whether you agree with what I'm about to say or not, People who love Jesus are are all over the place on how they understand this. I think it teaches us some important lessons uh, on on living in the days between Christ's death, resurrection, ascension, and his second coming, his final return. Uh, So we're going to read this, and I'll kind of put my cards on the table before we start so you'll know where I'm coming from. I think parts of this are kind of giving us a big overview of, of what's it going to look like in general between Christ's resurrection and the second coming. I think parts of this really are just about the destruction of the temple. And I think parts of this really are pointing us to Christ's second coming. And so I'm going to do this very differently from the way I usually handle a text. Um, I usually just read it all and then we jump to the sermon. I'm actually going to read this a little bit at the time this morning and make some comments as we go, and then we'll get into some application after that, because I want you to kind of see how I'm thinking about this text anyway, and maybe that'll be helpful to you. So, 
Let me pray for us, and, and we'll jump into this. Father in heaven, uh, this is a, a, a difficult passage, and I pray that, that you would use it in our lives, even if uh, we don't understand it perfectly. You tell us that, that, that there are some things in your word that are difficult to understand, and this is one of those. Uh, but I pray that you would use it in spite of our ignorance, and my ignorance, and our lack of understanding, that you would use it to point us to Jesus uh, and use it to show us how we might live uh, faithfully in these days as we await his return. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so let's start here in verse 1. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So Jesus is coming out of the temple in Jerusalem. He's had several run-ins that we've talked about over the last few weeks uh, with kind of the the religious authorities there at the temple. Uh, And as they are leaving, his disciples kind of look back and they're just like, man, this is a really cool building. This is like one of the most impressive buildings around. Uh, and they were right. The temple at that time was, ma- was massive. Uh, the Jewish historian Josephus says that some of the stones of the building were 25 cubits long, 8 cubits high, and 12 in width. A cubit is about a foot and a half. So he's saying that there were individual stones of this temple that were 40 feet long and 12 feet high. They were huge stones. It, it was described by some as this white mountain covered with gold. Uh, Depending on who you read, it covered at least the temple complex with all the extra buildings covered about a sixth of the city of Jerusalem at that time. Uh, Rabbis would say, he who has not seen the temple has never seen a glorious building in his life. So this is an incredibly impressive building and they're leaving the grounds and the disciples are basically standing there taking selfies with the temple in the background. Like They're like, man, this is, this is really cool. We're going we're gonna to put this on Facebook. And Jesus says, it's all coming down. You're like, what? What? The temple's coming down? All right, let's, let's keep reading. Verse 3. <clears throat> and as he sat on the Mount of Olives, Olives opposite the temple... Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will, the sign, what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Now, <clears throat> it's important at this point to realize that Mark has this habit of condensing things. We've seen this before in the, in the Gospel of Mark. And he shortened the disciples' question here. Because if you look back in, in Matthew's account of this, the disciples ask, when, when is this going to happen and what will be the signs? And when is the end of the age coming? And so the disciples are really asking two things. They're asking, when is, when is the temple coming down and when are you returning? And in their mind, they, they probably think this is all going to happen at the same time. That it's all going to be one big event. But Jesus, in the way that he responds to them, seems to indicate it's not going to all be one big event. So he's really responding to two of these two questions. When will the temple be destroyed? When are you coming back? Verse 5. Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. 
And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginnings of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit." And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now, what's he talking about here? Uh, You can make a pretty good case that Jesus is simply continuing to talk about the events that are going to lead up to the destruction of the temple in, in the year 70. Um, because you see this kind of thing happening to the apostles. Uh, but I think he's, he's more sketching a big picture sketch for us. Of this is what it's going to look like in general between my ascension and my return. And so he's, kinda, he's, he's drawing a big timeline of history and what it's going to look like. And then he's going to kind of narrow down on one particular event that's about to happen that's going to be really bad. Which brings us to verse 14. So let's keep reading. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to his cloak. And alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days... Pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders To lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard, I have told you all things beforehand. Now, some people read this part and they say, this is all future. This is all about the Antichrist. This is all about the the end of times and the end of the world. But others think, and I would agree that this is more, at least the first part of this, is more about the literal destruction of the temple in AD 70. Uh, the abomination of desolation is a phrase from the book of Daniel, uh, and, and it probably refers to events surrounding the Roman occupation and, and destruction of the city of Jerusalem that was coming up, uh, where, the, where the temple really was desecrated. Uh, somewhere toward the end of these verses, he may be transitioning more again towards the second coming, but some of this is a little hard to read. Pick up in verse 24. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the, to the ends of heaven. Now, 
Here, it really looks like he is talking about the second coming. There are some who would say, no, this is, this is actually still about AD 70. It's not about him coming to earth through the clouds. It's about him being enthroned at the right hand of his father, sending out messengers. The word angel can be translated messengers. Sending out uh, his messengers to proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth. I think as you compare this to other New Testament passages about the second coming, it looks a lot like those passages. Uh, and so this is probably pointing to the second coming. But then Jesus transitions back, and you can see it in the word he uses here, these things. When he uses the word these things, he seems to be getting at what's about to happen immediately with regard to the temple. Um, So verse 28, I'd say this is again looking at what's going to happen around the destruction of the temple. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Uh, When are these things related to the destruction of the temple going to take place? Well, they're going to take place within this generation. And they took place within that generation. The temple was destroyed. Okay, uh, But Jesus, it still leaves us one question hanging. When are you coming back? And Jesus says, I don't know. Uh, verse 32. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Alright, so Jesus here transitions and he says concerning that day, concerning that hour, changing the subject from the destruction of the temple to his return, he says no one knows. And that's hard to explain, but Jesus in his human nature does not know when he's coming back. But but we are to stay awake. The take home from that is you are to stay awake because you don't know when Jesus might be coming back. You don't know when the man's going to come around. So, is everybody hopelessly confused? I see if we can make some application. What can we what can we get out of this difficult passage? Number one, I think one point I'd want to make out of this is don't <clears throat> don't get caught up in last days nonsense. Alright? Don't get caught up in last days nonsense. Jesus says False messiahs will come and people will be led astray by them. He says it will be tempting to be led astray by them because events in world history are going to be difficult and when things get bad, it looks like the end of the world, these false teachers come along and you're like, well, maybe that's him. He says, don't be fooled by them. Then he says, uh, don't get caught up in the prediction mania. Verse 7 There will be wars and rumors of wars. Don't be alarmed. These must take place. The end is not. There will be earthquakes. There will be famines. And he says, all that's just the beginning of birth pains. 
The end is not yet. And this could be a really, really long labor. Um, I had a seminary professor once, he was doing a, a, a one-day s- a seminar on prophecy, and he said he wanted to title it, Why I Don't Think Jesus is Coming Back for a Million Years. But he said he didn't title it that because if you title it that, nobody wants to come to that. All right? yeah, that, that, that doesn't sell any tickets to your prophecy um, event. But, but look, everybody, every time things get bad... Somebody says, and, and, and maybe you've said this, oh, it, it, it looks really bad. Things have never been this bad before. Do you know how many times people have said that? Uh, it's, it's never been this bad before. It's never going to be like this. He must be coming back. And so Jesus is saying, be wary of people who think they can read all these signs because they don't necessarily mean that the end is imminent. They're, they could just be birth pangs that we're going through. So be wary when uh, TV preachers and when people trying to sell books uh, tell you that they've read the signs and that they're pretty sure they know when Jesus is coming back. Be especially wary of that because Jesus said that he himself didn't know when he was coming back. I saw Jim Baker, who I, I didn't even know this guy was around anymore, but I, heard, I saw him the other day talking about Donald Trump and, and Putin and what they were doing and how they're doing something related to Israel. And that was a sign of how everything was lining up for Jesus to come back. Look, when, and man, I hope you do this already, but when you see those guys on TV, just change the channel uh, and call your Aunt Martha and tell them not to give them any more money. Um, tell them to give it to the homeless shelter. It will be, it'll be much more useful. But, but look, we, we ought to be prepared part of what Jesus is saying but we shouldn't think we see a sign that Jesus is coming behind every troop movement in the Middle East or behind what the Prime Minister of Israel does or doesn't do that, and, and I don't have time to get into all this but the, the church is the new Israel so you don't really need to worry about what happens in Israel so you can just take that out of your Facebook news feed just, you, don't, you don't have to worry about it it's in terms of when Jesus is coming back we ought to live like Jesus, we ought to be prepared for the fact that Jesus could come back at any moment, but we also ought to be prepared that he might not come back for a million years. We don't know. And so in some respects, we're like the exiles living in Babylon that we like to, to, to talk about, that they're called to settle down and have families and build houses and pray for the prosperity of the city that they live in, expecting Jesus to return, but not knowing when he will return. Uh, so don't, that's point one, uh, don't get caught up in the last day's madness. He is coming back, but nobody knows when he's coming back, except the Father. Number two, uh, in the time between Jesus' resurrection and ascension and his second coming, there will be great difficulties for believers. There will be great difficulties for believers. Jesus says, they'll deliver you to councils. You'll be beaten in synagogues. You'll stand before governors of king and kings. And this is stuff that literally happened uh, to the disciples. This literally happened to the apostles. And the New Testament is pretty clear, I think, that we can expect suffering and difficulty ourselves as believers. <clears throat> now, we're Americans, and we're really comfortable, and we tend to overact to, to any amount of suffering 
Uh, there's a Babylon Bee headline recently that said, U.S. Christians brace for brutal onslaught of happy holidays attacks. All right, like that's, that's our persecution that we have to put up with people saying happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas. And, and, and we can be a little silly about what is actually persecution and what isn't persecution. But, but, but honestly, even in America, if you follow Jesus, you'll be mocked at times because people say, you, you believe in an imaginary God. You're crazy. Why do you believe in this imaginary God? You may face discrimination or even prosecution because of your beliefs about homosexuality. Uh, you will be called bigoted because of your positions on gender issues. You may be pressured if you're employed by an academic institution to toe the politically correct line. You might lose your job even for voicing an opinion that's in keeping with what the Bible teaches. And all those things have happened and, and, and are happening in our country now. And Jesus says, you and I shouldn't really be surprised by that. We shouldn't be surprised by worse than that. that. That's what it looks like in this time before he comes again. But he encourages us not to be anxious and to stand firm, to entrust ourselves to him and to be his witnesses. Uh, but at times, interestingly enough, uh, if things get bad enough, as they did around the time of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, Jesus says, head for the hills. All right? there, there will be times when, when you have to flee persecution as God's people, and, and that's okay. So, don't get caught up in the last day's madness. Uh, don't be surprised by suffering and difficulty. Number three, Jesus says, be my witnesses in the midst of this. Be my witnesses in the midst of this. Uh, you'll be called before kings to do what, he says? To bear witness. To bear witness before them. Uh, and guess what? Even when the early church had to flee persecution, the effect that had was that they took the gospel with them. And so as the early Christians were persecuted, they took the gospel to the world as a result of that persecution. You see this in the book of Acts. So whether they stayed... And endured, or whether they had to run for their lives, they were witnesses to Jesus. And they talked about the hope they had in the gospel. Now, we've got kind of a reverse situation of this going on today. This is happening in Europe, where it's being reported that some of the, the Muslims that are freeing persecution in their countries are making their way to Europe and they're hearing the gospel. And they're being converted to Christianity there. One of them even called Christianity the religion of freedom. So no, so no matter what you think U.S. policy ought to be about refugees, as an individual Christian, you and I should not be living out of fear. Uh, we should be living out uh, a hope of trusting God and seeing that God, hey, he is provident, maybe providentially placing this refugee on our shores and I may be scared of this but I actually have an opportunity to bear witness to them and so we should live less out of fear of what they may do and more out of hope that wow here's an opportunity for me to speak the gospel here's an opportunity for me to be God's witnesses and he's literally bringing people to me for me to do this alright so we're called to be witnesses don't get caught up in the nonsense Expect difficulty, 
be his witnesses. And then finally, Jesus finishes all this by saying, stay awake. All right? I'll say it to you. Stay awake. We're getting close. Uh, Stay awake. Uh, Why? You don't know when the owner of the house is coming back. You don't know when the man's coming around. So stay, stay, stay awake. Be alert. And, and that suggests three things to me. And I'll close with these. That suggests to me, staying awake suggests that we ought to live holy lives. That we ought to live hopeful lives. But at the same time, we ought to live with this sense of, of urgency. We ought to live in light of the fact that Jesus is coming back. And we don't know when he's coming back. What do you want Jesus to find you doing when he comes back? What do you want Jesus to find you doing when he comes back? Uh, Titus tells us, The grace of God teaches us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Uh, C.S. Lewis uses the illustration of a woman using a lighted makeup mirror uh, to put on her makeup so that when she goes out on the sunlight, she looks like she wants to look when she goes outside into the light. And in the same way, he says, we ought to dress ourselves so that we're prepared when the light of Jesus' coming comes and shines on us. We ought to be living holy lives. Uh, This also suggests that we ought to be living hopefully. Because... Jesus is returning to make all things new. We read that in our call to worship. Jesus is returning to make all things new. And so we don't give up hope because we know that Jesus is coming to make all things new. We don't give up hope because of the tragedies of this life. Uh, At the end of the Civil War, there was a a slave who had been freed by the name of Nat Fuller. And he became a caterer. and, And even though... They were rationing food and things were tight. He assembled enough food to have this great feast. And he had both whites and blacks sitting down at this feast. And it was meant to be this great feast of racial reconciliation. Um, And it seemed to have, at least at that feast, that effect. Fast forward 150 years. 2015. They held a Nat Fuller reconciliation feast again in Charleston. Uh, for the purpose of working toward racial reconciliation. One of the people who was invited to that feast was state senator and pastor Clementa Pickney. Now, if you know that name, you remember that name because he was killed a few weeks later in the Charleston church shooting. And like that's a sad story, right? That's, that's, that's depressing. That's not an encouraging story. How do we maintain hope in the light of that? How do we maintain hope when even our reconciliation feasts don't bring about reconciliation for everybody? And even a week after somebody goes to one of these things trying to bridge racial divides, he's killed by somebody on the other side of that racial divide. How do we maintain hope? We maintain hope by remembering that when Jesus returns, there is going to be a great big reconciliation feast. That we are going to be sit down at the table. We are going to be reconciled to God. We are going to be reconciled to one another. It's called the wedding supper of the Lamb. And, And we look forward to that day. Because after that meal, nobody dies. Like it does not take. All right? 
We don't go back and start sinning again and it's like it never happened and we got to try it again 150 years later. No, it, 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 it's effective because sin has been done away with and death has been done away with and the ultimate reconciliation has been worked and it's, and it's final. So even though we live in the midst of hope that often turns sour, uh, we know that one day there will be a feast that won't be followed by death but will be followed by eternal life and eternal joy and eternal celebration. So we stay awake and and we don't get bogged down and we hope for that. Live holy, hopefully, and then finally I want to say we should live with urgency. Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back to, to judge the quick and the dead. Jesus is coming back with justice. He will come justly. Are you are you ready for that? Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote, The doctrine of the second coming teaches us that we do not and cannot know when the world drama will end. The curtain may be rung down at any moment. Therefore, precisely because we cannot predict the moment, we must be ready at all moments. What is important is not that we should always fear or hope about the end, but that we should always remember, always take it into account. An analogy here may help. A man of 70 need not be always feeling, much less talking about his approaching death, but a wise man of 70 should always take it into account. He would be foolish to embark on schemes that require 20 more years of life. He would be criminally foolish not to have made his will. Now what death is to each, the second coming is to the whole human race. The whole life of humanity in this world is precarious, temporary, and provisional. The whole of human life in this world is precarious, no matter how old you are, temporary, and provisional. And let me, I, I kind of want to press into this for a minute, because I know there are, there are many of us, or some of us, who are like struggling with, what do I think about God, and, and is this real, and, and should I entrust myself to Jesus, and do I really want to follow Him? And on the one hand, I want to say, that's good, and that's great, and that's fine. I want, us to, I want this to be a place where you can wrestle with the truths of the gospel and think it through. We don't, we don't want people making professions of faith in Jesus just because it's the southern churchy thing to do. But on the other hand, the curtain could fall at any moment. The curtain could come down on your life today. The curtain could come down on all of our lives today. And then what? And then what? Do you have any sense of urgency when it comes to considering Christ's claims and who He is and how you stand before Him? I want to challenge you not just to meander through life, just kind of doing your thing, thinking, well, I'll, I'll think a, more, a little more seriously about that tomorrow. i got, I got stuff to do right now. Um, Walker Percy, uh, for any Walker Percy fans, in his book, The Second Coming, wrote this. The present day unbeliever is, is crazy because he finds himself born into a world of endless wonders. And I got to actually, I got to clean this up some. This, there's a little profanity in it. But if you read, read Walker Percy, having no notion of how he got here, a world in which he eats, sleeps, Uh, goes to the bathroom, has sex, works, grows old, gets sick, and dies, and is quite content to have it so. 
No one in his entire life, not once in his entire life, does it cross his mind to say to himself that his situation is preposterous, that an explanation is due him and to demand such an explanation, and to refuse to play out another act of the farce until the explanation is forthcoming. No, he takes his comfort and ease, plays along with the game, watches TV, drinks his drink, laughs, curses politicians, and now and again to relieve the boredom and the farce of which he is dimly aware, goes off the war to shoot people. For all the world as if his prostate were not growing cancerous, his arteries turning to chalk, his brain cells dying off by the millions, as if the worms were not going to have him in no time at all. On the contrary, the more intelligent he is, the crazier he is, and the bigger a jerk he is. He becomes a professor and forms an interdisciplinary group. He reads Dante for its mythic structure. He joins the ACLU and concerns himself with the freedom of the individual and does not once exercise his own freedom to inquire how in God's name he should find himself in such a ludicrous situation as being born in Brooklyn, living in Manhattan, and being buried in Queens. He is as insane as a French intellectual. Now, uh, I, I think part of what Walker Percy is saying there is, would, would you take a minute and think about this world that you're living in and who you are and why you're here, at, at what you're even doing here instead of just going through it mindlessly eating and drinking and sleeping and going to work without taking any care as to, to why you're here? Jesus says, um, here's why you're here. The reason you're here is that the master of the house has placed you here as his servant in this house to take care of his house as it were. And the day is coming when the master is coming back. When the master of the house is coming back to see what you've been doing and to see how you've done taking care of his house. Will you be ready for that? Will you be ready for that? Let me pray. Uh, Father, I pray that you would teach us to live uh, indeed in light uh, of your son's second coming. uh, That we would recognize that there will be days of difficulty. That we would recognize that in the midst of this we are to be your witnesses and to hope in you. uh, That you would help us to live holy lives and hopeful lives. Father, I pray that you'd help us also live with a sense of of urgency and of the reality that, that your son is coming back and we know not when. And we ought to make sure that we are prepared for that. We ought to make sure that we know what in the world this world is for and what you expect of us. So, Father, I pray that you would convict us and cause us to think about who you are and about who we are and about where we stand with you. I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.